You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I fly out to LA, having a great time, and the band take me to Claudia Schiffer's husband's birthday party, which is at the whiskey bar at the Sunset Marquee, or just in the, the Sunset Marquees. I, I, you know, it's the only time I've been there. And uh, there were loads of kind of weird, famous people in there, and, you know, some I knew, some I didn't. And uh, Stephen Tyler was one of them, and he was, like, kind of sat there in the kind of darker side of the bar, and he had, like, a couple of ladies with him but they both had a hand in his trousers. And uh, the, the craziest thing is he, he just started a conversation with me. It's just like, yeah, man, no, how's it going? What are you up to? You having fun? And I'm just like, do you want 10 minutes? Shall I come back? You know, am I getting in the way? I could multitask. And he totally could multitask. He, he was talking to me while they were going at it. And, you know, I, I ended the conversation not knowing whether I should have just stayed longer just to keep talking to him. Um, but he had a great night, I had a great night, and then we caught up afterwards, and he, he definitely looked a lot more relieved. Hey, welcome to another episode of 2020. My name is Corey Peza, here as always with Siobhan and Ben. We have a uh, wonderful, wonderful episode, Going, taking another step outside of just the, you know, your basic crazy rock star guitarist and, and talking to someone who wears many, many hats. None of the guitars we've talked to have been basic. <laughs> well, with that said, today we were talking to Amit Sharma of Kerrang! Guitar World, legendary journalist, has talked to so total many guitar. of the people. Total guitar. So many of the people that we've interviewed that we look up to that are our music heroes, he's talked to them all. Two magazines right now on different sides of the pond with Metallica on the cover, and he's part of those stories. Yeah, it's kind so. of a big deal. Check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Benny Goodman, and if you haven't figured out by the 101st, 102nd episode, uh, this is 2020, and I'm here with my cohorts, my partners in crime, Siobhan Cronin and Corey Peza. How are you guys doing this morning? How did we oh, get? Good. How did we get past 100 episodes with, and, <laughs> and people still watch and listen? It blows my mind. <laughs> we're we're being told at this point we need to change the name of the the podcast, but I, I like it. Oh, well, Siobhan, your hair. Your hair is awfully blonde today. It is. It is very blonde. I went wild. I was like, just make it really blonde. Is it artificial <laughs> intelligence? <laughs> and there, then there's I, probably I'm, something in there. I'm so excited to announce my new friend, mind you, but a guy that really, what this gentleman does for the music industry, it's so underappreciated by everyone other than the people within the industry, and we want to demystify that today. I'm hit with. I'm hit. I'm here <laughs> with a Mitch Sharma. <laughs> From Guitar World Magazine, from Kerrang, from Total Guitar, just an amazing guitarist, journalist, rock dude. How are you doing? Ah, oh, dude, I am incredibly honored to be joining you guys today. And uh, like I say, I'm really, really, really proud of this new friendship that we formed, Benny, because, you know, I've 
I've always wanted a friend called Benny. There's so <laughs> many Bens out there. So many fucking Bens, and it's really hard to find a good Benny that, well, that you the want to keep. The problem is they're all five right. years old. Yeah, that's, that's another thing. So, yeah, the police had a word with me about that, actually. Um, or they're, a Mike, but, they're in a Michael <laughs> Jackson song forever. <laughs> but, you know, when I think of Bennies, you know, I always go back to maybe Total Recall. And what a compelling character he was, isn't he? I've got five kids to feed, you know. Uh, it's a sad ending for Benny, of course. Sorry about well, the spoiler, but I'm sure you've all seen Total Recall, right? Benny I mean, gets screwed. Three boobs? I mean, that's the smartest thing ever. Is <laughs> instead of two boobs, they're like, we're going to flash a chick and we're going to show you three boobs at once. That was blew my mind. I'm like, I didn't know that was possible, Hollywood. You can have three boobs at once? Pioneers. Pioneers, really. <laughs> But now so you're my new favorite Benny, so there you go. That's <laughs> Battle of the Bennies. It's over, mate. We have a winner. <laughs> so where are you tuning in from today? Because we're the three dumb Americans here, but obviously, you know, love having representation from across the pond. Can you tell us about where you are right now? Of course, yes. I'm in sunny Brighton, which is on the south coast of England, uh, kind of uh, facing France, you know, not far from, like, you know, Dieppe, I guess. It's kind of facing that on the river. You can't see it, though, from here. But, uh yeah, I'm born in London, though, so I only just moved away from the kind of hometown uh, to just kind of get a bit more sunshine and uh, a is bit it, more is space. Is this the Brighton from, the, from Brian May's Brighton Rock? Exactly. It's the same one. It's like a seaside town that so you've got, like, beach and uh, a lot, it's a lot of alternative stuff. It's full of, like, vegan and vegetarian food and all sorts of weird hippies like me. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really creative place, actually, and... It, leaving London was really hard for me because I, I'm born and bred and I, I fucking love that city. I'm a proud Londoner. But it, it came to the kind of time where I was thinking, ah, it's time for a bit of a new adventure, you know. And after the whole lockdown thing, it's not like there's much going on in cities in England. So, that, so, this is, just... so this is new. Did you just move to Brighton? And first off, could you explain to people, uh, so you're from London and what's yeah. the difference between London and Brighton? And as a writer, as a journalist, what made you go, hey, man, I want to leave this gloom and doom that is London with the awesome Black Sabbath band that rocks our town uh, and move to Brighton. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, you know what? Uh, Brighton and London are very close. You know, people call Brighton London on sea, actually. It's just like a 55 0 minute uh, train ride. Or it's if like you're the in the Long car, Island it's about of Manhattan. Yeah, kind of. And if you're in the car, it's like an hour. So it's like, it really is kind of part of London. And it's just as eccentric and cool, full of musicians. Um, so I just kind of fancied a bit of a change, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, my wife just had a kid. I guess that was one big reason. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Uh, and, you know. Unless it wasn't was purposeful, then I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I needed space for my guitars, you know, because uh, I'm always kind of accumulating more and more and pedals and amps and stuff. And, like, our flat in London, like, it's a bit like New York, right? If you're lucky enough to live in such a cool city, you put up with this box flat and... And you're lucky to have it, you know, and you've got to fight to keep it. But in our case, we, um, yeah, we thought, all right, let's get, let's get out of town just a little bit and maybe get a bit more uh, of a chill out time. Well, is that so you can put more Les Pauls and, you know, uh, fenders around without your, your, your lady going, where is my shoe space? Exactly. We're not fighting for space anymore. So, uh, you know, it, it wasn't easy, though. Like I say, my, my relationship with London is like pure love. Like, I'm so proud to come from there. I'm proud of the music that's come from there. I'm proud of the city that it is today. It's so inclusive. It's so vibrant. It's like, it doesn't matter from where you come from in the world. You'll be able to find your food in London. There, there's something for everyone there. It's, it's really Absolutely. funny. You mentioned it was what, like a 50 minute train ride? 
yeah, uh, so, that's nothing. So, so that's yeah, it's essentially like what I drive anytime I need to go to a gig in Boston. Right. <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah ten miles, ten miles. Yeah, you you Americans, you're really Olympic when it comes to uh, <laughs> traveling around your country and stuff. Like long drives, are short drives to you. Whilst yeah. to us, well, you know, in London, it's like you won't go further than an hour. Anything beyond an hour from London is like a different country. I'm well, driving of course, the whole country yeah. is like less than the size of a state in the U.S. Tomorrow, so, I mean, tomorrow it's a totally I'm, going, I'm going two and a half hours to a gig and I'll be, you know, there for the day and then coming home afterwards. So it's, it's, yeah, so, and, it's so funny to make that comparison. And that's another great thing about London. Like the gigs was and still is absolutely insane. It's just starting back up now. But I found myself, you know, as a writer, uh, as a journalist, you know, reviewing gigs. Uh, you know, sometimes I'd be at five a week, like literally... Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, like, you know, just doing rows and rows of gigs with a few odd ones out. And it's intense. You know, I feel like living in London as a rock journalist is like being on tour, except the bands come to you. So you're not really on tour. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like 2020 where I just go into my basement and the bands come to me. Exactly. Basically. And by the way, exactly. just so you know, we already have two British ambassadors on the show. So I just want to start off by saying that we love you just for the way that you speak. I know that sounds like really American, but I, <laughs> if, you, if I'm ever on a plane, I've said this to Steve Wood and to your friend Richard Shaw, which we'll get into. But if I was ever going to die on a plane, I would want your voice to be the voice telling me, we're going down. Because it just, when, you, when it's said in a, in a British accent, it's just so much more pleasant. So you guys think I, that's I, so evil. It's not that you're evil. It's you're just pleasant. And I want when we spoke on the on Guitar World, one thing that you said to me blew my mind. You said you went to, and I want to say university, with Richard Shaw, not only our good friend from Cradle of Filth, but played on Lost Symphony. You guys are friends? Yeah, we went to the same school. It's like a guitar school, so my degree is in guitar. Um, and Richard, you know, he's got kind of similar qualifications in that sense. I don't think we were there at the exact same time, or we might have just... Well, I just missed each other a little bit, but, um, you know, he's been doing great in Cradle of Filth and, you know, they're, they're very proud of him because they post about students that have done well, you know, uh, and they, they did with me as well. They kind of, they even asked me to come back and write a course on journalism, which is so much fun, you know, uh, getting to do something like that. <laughs> That's awesome. Ah. I love it. Let, let me ask you how so starting off as a as an instrumentalist how did you get into writing what was the transition like like what made you want to get kind of branch off into that okay so this is going to be quite a long answer i was thinking you guys might want to know a little bit about the trajectory so i went to this uh, acm place in guildford with which is the same one richard went to and they were really really good there at teaching us what we needed you know, I came into it wanting to be Zach Wilde, you know, I just wanted to shred and shred and shred. And to be honest, not much has changed. But while I was there, they forced us to learn about the mechanics of the music industry, where people You learned belong. Megadeth at school? The mechanics? That's a good tune, dude. I, I didn't like it as much as the Four Horsemen, but I like the mechanics. Yeah. No, I want to hear well, about this, though, because American universities, I don't think, do that. So that's, that's interesting. Go on. Um, just a side note, uh, my nickname in a band I once played in was Kirk Amit. So there you go. <laughs> but, uh, yes. go. Go back to uh, the career thing. You know, I did. I went to this uni and they really forced us to learn about what, you know, copyright is and what all these little bodies in the music industry do, like way beyond like, you know, just the fun stuff. But obviously we learn about publicists and agents and management and promoters and how they all kind of 
syncopate together and just kind of work in tandem. And you know, I was bored. I was like, why the fuck are they teaching me this shit? I, I really went there just wanting to learn how to shred because that's what most people were going there to do. And while we were there, I kind of realized that actually my chances of becoming the next Zach Wild were pretty slim. Uh, and even if I was like 10 times better than him, like I'd still have like a really uphill battle ever to make it as a musician. So I thought, okay, I'll try and work around my passion. And that's what they really encourage their students to do. And I never studied journalism. I never wanted to become a writer necessarily. I'm a guitar player, but just fell into music journalism. Uh, so after I left the uni, I started working for PRS, which is like ASCAP for you guys in America, mm -hmm. right? It's like okay. the collecting uh, society for songwriters. And uh, my job was in the live music team. So what I did was like, get set lists and make sure that the songwriters at events were getting paid their 3% royalty of the door takings. That's how it works in the UK. So I was doing that. And because it was in the live sector, it didn't feel too backseat. I still felt like, well, you know, they send you to festivals with a triple A pass. You get to meet like all the bands and basically you knock on their dressing room doors and you're telling them, uh, oh, you're going to probably get paid X amount for playing here today on top of what you're already getting paid. Considering rock musicians generally write their own music. So obviously they'd be quite happy with me and let me kind of tag along for a bit. So I kind of, I was doing that for a few years and they had a magazine. So I kind of got involved a little bit with that. But I figured it was, it'd be like the perfect springboard to try and do something different in the music industry. And at the time I was promoting hair metal nights, uh, like in London's Sunset, Sunset Strip, like we call it Porno Alley. Uh, and, you know, we even did the launch party for Chinese Democracy by Guns N' Roses. I was DJing club nights, radio stuff. Um, and eventually I decided, all right, I'm going to try and do live gig reviews. So I did that for an online website for like a couple of years. And that paved the way for magazine work. So I was kind of in my mid-20s and suddenly I was writing in print for magazines like Classic Rock, which uh, led to me working for Metal Hammer. So I was their features editor for like three years. I also wrote for Prog Magazine, which is part of that family. And I did that for a few years and then I left to work for Kerrang! and returned to the guitar mags because uh, I did do that kind of early on. So now, yeah, the main magazines I write for are Kerrang!, Total Guitar, Guitar World, Bass Player as well. I've done bits for Metro, which is our newspaper. I've, I've written for drum magazines like Planet Rock, another magazine. You can, know, can you explain to me? There's a huge disconnect because when did you learn how to read? Because you said you went to school for guitar. And you wanted to be Zach Wilde. Does Zach know how to read? I feel like he only knows how to read, like, uh, barbarian glyphs. Yeah, when you email Zach, it's all in capital. You said, like... <laughs> and, then, and then father the this, father that, the right doom, you know, like, it, it, fa father Amit, you know. Fa oh, is it Father Sharma? Is, it, is, that, is that how Sharma. you say it? He actually <laughs> calls me that. Uh, I wouldn't doubt it. Two things about Zach Wilde. Every time you interview him, he'll end every sentence with, oh, no doubt about it. And uh, the second thing is that if you Wait, ask do that him again, about, do that again with an American uh, accent, no doubt about it. No doubt it. about it. Uh, that's me trying to do Jersey or whatever it is. Uh, but like, yeah. And uh, the other thing he always does is when you're talking to him about his influences, he talks about this soup or broth that he's making, and it's like, dude, can you stop the broth analogy? It's like we've heard it so many times. But he loves it. He's like a, a glutton for punishment in that sense. Uh, so like, yeah, working for these magazines led to. Uh, interviewing like all my heroes you know Zach was one of the first to be honest but you know I've done you know so many interviews with Slash and Jimmy Page and 
Tool. I did their Koran cover not that long ago. Oh, so hold on, slow this down yeah. as a total nerd. You just named like 10 bands that like I'm obsessed with. What's it like yeah. to sit down with Slash? Oh, he is the sweetest dude. He's got a very warm heart. He's never one to kind of try and be outspoken or anything. I always feel like with Slash. Do you think he's being he, nice but, to you because you're the press? Like, I wonder that sometimes. Like, you're like, I oh, think yeah, so, actually. he's the nicest guy. And then it's like, give me a good article. Ah, uh, no. Because, you know, someone like Slash doesn't need press. He, he, he literally, so yeah. beyond any magazine that, like, any writer or any any title would be really lucky to have him. And every time I've spoken to him, he's just so down to earth. He has no kind of, I'm a rock star ego. Uh, we've had some really good times together. And he once drew me a horse. So I'm the only person in the world that's got a horse drawn by Slash on A4 paper. I've got it framed. It's really, really cool. He signed it as well. And I've got a picture of him holding it. And it's amazing. Who else do you know? It's got a drawing of a horse by Slash. No one, mate. No one. Absolutely. <laughs> so let me let me ask you, how did it how did you go about learning how to write? Because it's not a skill that everybody has, especially, you know, musicians. We're not really reading and writing a lot. So how did you did you just do it by practicing like in real time in the jobs that you had? Like how did you become a writer in terms of the art of writing? In terms of that side, I did um, English literature at like during my A-level. So uh, I did study in that sense, but never with the intention of journalism or music journalism. Um, but I think with music journalists, all the ones I know uh, didn't really study journalism as such. They're, they're all kind of perhaps masters of their trade from the gear side, for all the guitar mags. All my friends that work there are absolute legends that are passionate about, you know, playing and gear and all of that stuff. And then as for the other titles, you tend to find the people that write for them are really, really kind of big and passionate fans themselves, you know, that, that want well, to critique. Feel, I was going to say, because I, I feel like the passion brings it out of you, because I'm going to tell you the way I got into the music industry when I was in high school was conning my way into shows for free by writing for my high school paper. And I had sent something into a magazine. They're like, okay, this guy's semi-literate. And I and basically I had learned from, I read a lot of books when I was younger. I stopped doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. <laughs> but uh, I read a lot of magazines and you read these magazines. So you kind of like inside your mind, you're like, okay, I read that review of Black Sabbath, that, re that review of Aerosmith. I'm going to imitate that style in my mind. And then I found myself writing it. But because you're so passionate about Jimmy Page or so passionate about Slash, it makes you want to write better for them because you're you're explaining about them to your people do you feel like that empowered you to become a better journalist and that maybe you took it more seriously because the subject matter was so important to your heart totally um especially with the guitar angle stuff because obviously that's not really about the lyrics or the story of what the band have been going through you know when i i do interviews with kerrang for example that's the main thing it's about the singer generally and the lyrics and that kind of stuff. But uh, when I do the guitar interviews, it's always a complete nerd out. And I find like maybe my best trick in terms of getting the answers is like reverse engineering them. So when I'm talking to an artist, quite often you ask a great guitar player, oh, what were you doing there? That lick, you know, that solo's great. They don't really want to talk about it too much. They're not going to tell you how they came up with it. And they, they don't really want to kind of go into it that much. But maybe us musicians were a bit secretive Sometimes when it comes to that, well, some, yeah, some are Japanese really... kid watches it, and then some five-year-olds playing Slash's <laughs> solo better to Slash, and then Slash is getting all these emails like, "Hey, did you see the five-year-old girl in Tokyo playing November Rain better than you?" And he's like, "Fuck <laughs> me!" And so, like with someone like Zach Wild, you know, it's three-note pentatonic stuff. So I'll try and you know, 
I'll do something like that, you know, just to warm up and get in the zone before the interview. And quite often that will win the artist over because, you know, I've got my guitar with me on the phone, just like I am on this podcast, right? And when we're talking, there'll just be a little lick here or there or a little riff, just so that I know exactly how I can find out what they did or how they wrote it. Because when you kind of encourage people in that sense, they're, they're more likely to open up, you know. With the people you're talking to, who's been the most open to discussing that side of, of the, the playing and, and the writing? Paul Gilbert, every time, is like a, a library, a library of information. And I absolutely adore talking to him. He's been really, really good. Um, then, What's the you most know, important thing Satchel, for us Satchel's been great. But, Sorry, okay, Paul so, Gilbert. I was going to say with Paul Gilbert, before you move off of him, what was the most important thing that he taught you of all the things that you've learned from him? Because, I mean, he is one of the greatest players of all time. But a lot of people don't know Paul Gilbert because it's Mr. Big. But all nerds in the guitar world, they worship him. What has he taught you with his encyclopedia knowledge? Right, that's a good question. I, I guess the last time I talked to him, we were talking about picking because, obviously, that's the one thing that scares us about Paul Gilbert it's like, you know, for me, I find I can pick on one string or two strings really fast, like up to ingway speed, pretty much. And I'm happy with that. But crossing all the strings, going like all six strings, three notes, no repeats, you know, like three, 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 and then right to the end. Paul Gilbert, some, pretty Dimebag. much the king of stuff. Exactly. But Dimebag would use a lot of legato. And I just Paul, said three, three, three. Yeah. <laughs> Whilst Paul... If he wants to, he'll pick everything and so cleanly. And the other day when I interviewed him, he actually kind of confessed that there is actually some arm movement involved because everyone's so concerned about wrist picking. And there's always that, there's that Paul Gilbert lick that we all do. And we all have different ways of playing it. My alternate picking's not that great. So I actually use my middle finger like to, to pick hybrid the- Hybrid picking? Yeah, to hybrid yeah, it. Yeah. And I, I find I can do it up to speed like that. Um, so some people might kind of use economy on something like that. But with Paul, he actually admitted he is moving his arm a bit um, and he didn't realize he was. And I thought, wow, because I think wrist picking gets so much attention. Everyone's like, yeah, you've got to pick clean from the wrist, man. It's the only way. But you know what? John Petrucci picks from the arm. If he's really going for it, there's nothing wrong with doing that. If that's what works Dude, for if you. If you I, I studied this with a guy named Jimmy Bell. I don't know if you know Jimmy Bell. He's the fastest most I, I I look. We've worked with Rusty Cooley. We've worked with all these <laughs> Marty Friedman. Jimmy Bell is the most ferocious picker yeah. in history. In have fact, you Zach, ever heard? He, have you heard of Jimmy Bell? No, um, I know that he's been on your stuff because I've seen his name. Okay, do me a favor. So, yeah. You know what? I, let's yeah. do. Let's do something right now. I, do you have an internet connection in front of you? Thankfully, I do. <laughs> Can you look up Jimmy Bell? Uh, we'll wait. I want to see a reaction. I want you. To, I think that this guy is the most ferocious picker. And when he came down to our studio, he does this thing that if you watch Steve Morse, there's a guy that like put like a GoPro in Steve Morse, where he's like kind of switches over strings. He has like this movement. Um, Jimmy Bell always goes, Betty, I can't sweep pick. I can't do this technique. He doesn't have okay. to because he just picks it. And I want you to watch Ow. it because he was runner up I'm to. I'm watching it right Zach. now, dude. Jimmy Bell picking technique on YouTube. He's playing country licks, clean, alternate picking everything. And like you say, dude, what he was doing really reminded me of Dixie Dregs, Steve Morse, that kind of thing. You know, I know Steve as well. Like I text Steve Morse. He's a mate of mine. He's an absolute legend. And I think when it comes to picking, he he's another like absolute kind of hero. You know, but different people have different techniques. So back to Paul, he. Um, He's just 
you know, very gracious and very open, you know. Some people are better at picking than others. And I'm actually really into legato players, so I listen to a lot of Alan Holdsworth. I'm holding a Richie Cotts and Telecaster here. They don't make them in seafoam green anymore, by the way. So. It's really pretty, yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about your colors because you have pink, you have seafoam green. These are like First if off, I got guitars, I would shop by I, color. I was going to say, That's- you're like the <laughs> Tiffany's boutique of guitars. I love that. I personally think wearing a pink guitar so you could see it across the theater and annoy people from back there is the coolest thing. Whereas when I was growing up, I'm like, why would you play a pink guitar? You have the most beautiful like Tiffany stained glass, like array of <laughs> guitars behind you. There's so if you're not on the YouTube, go watch it because Amit's guitar collection is gorgeous. There's a there's another green guitar at the back there. That's a Jeff Beck strap that I was texting you pictures of, Benny. Uh, the pink guitar, however, is a Nick Johnston Schechter signature, and um, he sent that me to me just to fuck around with. And that's <laughs> oh, so that's sweet awesome. of it. Like yeah. it's just a guitar in the mail. Yeah, keep it. What do you think? Do you like it? And he, like, I'm a big fan of his player. Look at that. Yes. I'm all for so green guitar. There's a guy who has, well, so it's technically not green. This is, I, this is an Ingve Malmsteen 1991 Japanese strat. It's so old that it's not even with the DiMarzio YJM pickups because they haven't wow. been made yet. But there's a guy with 45 Ingves online. And he didn't have this one, but he didn't want to pay the money because the guy who I got this from wanted all the money. But this is actually called Faded Sonic Blue. And the thing is, there is a sonic blue one. My question was, did it have so much smoke around it where it turned green? But <laughs> I've seen two or three other ones of these just on the interwebs, and they all look seafoam, but it's faded sonic blue. Ingve Malmsteen, I think it's the rarest one I've seen other than the silly double neck he had at one point. Wow, dude. Like, uh, your collection is pure porn. Honestly, this guy like is giving me nightmares right now because I'm pretty proud of my collection and the stuff he keeps sending me. It's just like Jesus. Oh, but yeah, uh, yeah, speaking of Ingve Malmsteen, you know, uh, his picking I learned a lot from. You know, licks like. Uh... <laughs> you know that that one and yeah, I don't know. I think he trilogy is... sweet guys. You know, that guy's a big influence on me too. So. I'm lucky in that all of these players have shaped my life and made me the musician I am. And, you know, first time you interview them, you might not really get to know too much, you know, scratch the surface. But, you know, come the fifth or sixth time, it's like, hey, Steve, I, how's it going? Oh, how are you doing again, man? You know, or, or John Petrucci, you know, who I've gotten to know really well. And Richie Cotson, who's like my biggest influence, like I say, you know, we've hung out every time he comes to London and I've hung out with him in L.A., um, so I tell you what, that, that's one of my favorite things about the job. You know, not only, yeah, there he is. Richie. In my studio, I have Richie staring at me at all times. So if I think I'm any good, I go, Richie, I'm playing Ingve Strat. <laughs> and he goes, uh-uh. It's an imposing Becker, looking picture Becker, too. Becker, well, I have Michael Shanker on the other wall staring at me. I've Basically, I've opened a portal with guitar players staring at each <laughs> other around me. So like Eddie Van Halen's <laughs> over there, Brian. So anytime I think I'm any good, I, before I send it to Corey, I go, what do you think, Richie? And he just <laughs> stares at me. Uh, you mentioned that you mentioned that, like you know, the the first time you interview someone, it, it may be a little more superficial, and then the more you get to know them, the more they open up. Like, how do you approach each new time that you meet with someone that you've spoken with, uh, you know, a numerous amount of times? Do you dig deeper? Do you try to find what's current with them, or like, what's your approach when you're going to write an article like that with someone you've met with a ton of times? Totally. Uh, let's go back to good old Paul Gilbert, because everyone fucking loves Paul, yeah. right? Um, you know, he's been playing a lot more jazz and blues-based music uh, over the last decade or so. He's also transitioned into a slide player. 
So it's like, you just got to be a fan. Just watch these artists evolve. If you listen and use your ears, it's clear what they're doing. And funnily enough, when I started writing, um, and I was writing for less geary mags, you know, you know, more straight kind of rock mags and stuff, but big ones. Um, I always felt like the gear side was like, uh, I was a bit guilty of it. I, I was almost a bit embarrassed of it. Like the fact that I went to university and that like, you know, I learned all my scales, like I'm classically trained and, you know, I've got a near relative pitch and, you know, all of that kind of stuff felt so uncool. Um, and who would have thought that that would end up becoming like but my ultimate. Cool. Yeah, it is cool. But that would end up becoming my biggest USP um, as a writer. And, you know, so many of my friends have, you know, struggled, you know, with lockdown and, the whole thing, it's been awful for everyone. And I, I've been really upset to see good people going through like dark times. But the weirdest thing with me is that I've had more work than ever because the gear mags are selling loads as well, from what I'm told. Like everyone's at home and just wants to play Led Zeppelin. So fuck yeah, man, great. <laughs> you know, if that means I have to interview Jimmy Page again and <laughs> help people understand what to do with a pentatonic scale. Can I tell you it. something about that I love about you? Because I sent you a song. <clears throat> And you remind me of, of, of Ollie Herbert because Ollie Herbert, anytime you'd send him something, wouldn't it be like, oh man, you played that great. He'd be like, the Mixolydian was used properly and I love how you sharpened the fourth and the seventh meter. Uh, like so I sent you a song and y you wrote, think the guitar leads are a mix of Phrygian, uh, Phrygian, Phrygian dominant and diminished, by the way. Fuck. I need to get laid more. And I'm like, <laughs> I played in, the, I'm like, I played in the Phrygian and the Phrygian dominant. Like what's, what's the difference? I don't even know. I worked on the song. I spent millions of hours on it, but you're like, this is what you did immediately. And I think that that's an amazing skill that you're able to be like, oh yeah, the Ionian A5. Wow, that's <laughs> totally what I would have done there. Well, the difference with the Phrygian and Phrygian dominant, of course, is that race third, you know, it's like a major it's like third the in a minor type. Zeppelin. So, you know. I don't know if you heard that, but, um, you know. If the, you turn uh, it down one click, you, you hit your limiter, and it, <laughs> it, 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 but it's very close. If you're actually slightly softer, we hear you perfectly. So it's kind of, um, I don't know. I love scales. I love chewing theory. You know, I'm, I met, here's a fun story because it involves Siobhan. We met randomly like four years ago because as a journalist you know i get flown around sometimes so maybe a bit less so these days as budgets are tightening but you know the travel is so much fun and my last visit to america involved coming to see star set in pittsburgh and you know i got to see the show and i remember us having beers after and you know that's one of my favorite things about the job you know because you you get to you get to make connections with people and like here we are all on this podcast it's crazy you know i look at all the guests involved with Lost Symphony. And it's like, dude, these are all pretty much 99% people I email myself and keep in touch with, like Marty Friedman and, you know, all, all sorts of like amazing players, Bumblefoot, you know, and then obviously there's Richard Shaw and Alex Skolnick, who I know. It's like, it's crazy. And then you know, I'd only interview Marty, once. Jeff Loomis, Jeff Angel Vivaldi, <laughs> Jimmy Bell, Joey Concepcion, Satchel. Interviewed Satchel so many times. Me, me and Satchel. Uh, no, no, let him, Rusty, let him go. go Rusty, on. Rusty, I've done. Uh, Satchel, you know, uh, is a good friend of mine. We keep in touch too. So, like, all of these people, like you say, Loomis as well. I reviewed his new Jackson guitar. Um, and, you know, I've interviewed him and Michael from Arch Enemy quite 
a lot of times now. So it's fun, you know, it's, um, it's crazy. You know, some of my favorite interviews are with people that I absolutely adore, like Ingve Malmsteen or Tool, you know, or Phil Anselmo, who, uh, who I also keep in touch with, who I got to know. Then there are people that you might not be personally a huge admirer of, and that's totally cool. I, I just posted today about an interview that I did with uh, Tom, Tom DeLonge. DeLong. Who, I tell you what, I do admire him. Fuck it, man. I grew up hearing... He found out about aliens. So, first off, that guy is cooler, not because he was in Blink-182, and then all the girls you know, <laughs> still jump around at weddings when you play that song, because that's what's amazing about it, is, is the resilience of that band. But the motherfucker wrote a 650-page book, two of them, about aliens, and he has the actual <laughs> least irrefutable information on aliens assembled of any human being ever. So who cares he's in Blink-182? He's finding out if there's fucking aliens. <laughs> exactly. And actually, you know, what, what? one thing that I realized just from the research ahead of the, the interview was that two of the videos he'd leaked himself had been confirmed by the American government two years later as UFOs. Like genuinely unidentified flying objects. But do you know the weirdest part about it? Go the weirdest part is that his custom model is also seafoam. <laughs> yeah. That could I, be, yeah. That is, a, that is a connection for sure. Can I ask what it was like, not to change the subject, but uh, interviewing Ingve Because he's someone that seems like very unapproachable in a lot of ways, as Ben can probably tell. So I'm wondering what, what's gonna it like I'm going to bring out my set list just in case. <laughs> uh, he, was, uh, he was always incredible. My first time interviewing him, he came to London and I was working in a magazine at the time, and it was like he was coming to the Houses of Parliament, you know, Big Ben, what all people want to do when they come to London, you know, see stuff like that. But this was a guided tour inside, like backstage with one of the politicians who had affiliations with the music industry. So my job that day was to go leave the office and take Ingve and his wife to the Houses of Parliament and like through the back bits where like people don't usually get shown. And then you end up at this bar, which is on the terrace off the Thames. And, you know, uh, we just had a drink together. And you know what? I will f forget everything you read about some of these people. Ingve is absolutely sweet. You know, his wife, April, have, you know, both of them have just been so, so nice to me over the years. I mean, the guy, you know, I think he's such an important guitar player because the whole neoclassical thing, he really was responsible for it. Like, of course, you had Richie Blackmore before. And I'm, you know, rock and classical, you know, you know this probably more than anyone, Siobhan, because you're such a brilliant musician and violinist yourself. But, you know, they, they collide so well. But Ingve was the guy that fucking, he, he made it go turbo. He just, he, he turbocharged it. And I still think to pick that clean and that effortlessly and, I don't know, he's, he's such an inspiration. And, yeah, he's, again, he's one of those guys that's got a bad reputation. But I don't know why, but it's... it's it's have wrong, you heard him uh, sing? How about, how about the singing thing? He's saying... He, so listen, okay. I love Ingve because Ingve was like the opposite of Ozzy. Ozzy found guitars. He's like, oh, you found Randy through Ozzy or Jakey Lee through Ozzy. I found Doogie White, Jeff Scott Soto, all these amazing singers. And then, and then Ingve's like, nah. And then you listen to his new record and it's blistering. And then he sings like <laughs> one word. And it doesn't even sound like anything because you're like, that's that was what he said because the lyrics are on the screen. And you just wonder, like, at what point you get like so brilliant, you're just like, I have to do everything myself. I can't even get a Dookie White. I can't even handle being in a room with a Jeff Scott Soto because I have to do it myself. Like, is that OK? It's totally OK, because I think the best musicians and this is just me speaking personally, 
are the ones that are like absolute control freaks. Like Trent Reznor is one of the people I admire most in this whole kind of musical landscape. Uh, Opeth, uh, one of my favorite bands. So Michael Ackerfeld, their, their singer and guitar player, he writes everything. He orchestrates it. Jimmy Page did it with Led Zeppelin. I like I like people that want to be in charge and like really, really see their music as like the full thing. Not just like, you know, the guitar player writing riffs in his basement or the bass player plodding along. Well, like, Sting showed up to, to practice one day and said, here's synchronicity and handed it to Stuart Copeland. And I'm like, you guys are going to make this, right? And that's like literally played like every single part with Sting. That's basically a solo record. Well, that's a huge sure. part of how Starset operates, too. I mean, Dustin is like the true creative vision. And, you know, he has a very fulsome you know, vision of what he wants exactly all the time. And that's, I think that's why it works. You know, I, I totally agree with you. It's when you have someone that's super, yeah, has a strong vision and they're very, you know, controlling of that vision. I think it helps a lot. Probably. Um, you know, I'm not saying that's always the case, but I just feel like a lot of the bands I gravitate towards have that perhaps one person, the guitar player doing a bit more than guitars. Like they're, they're literal geniuses in my mind. And, uh, you know, I've, me and Benny have spoken a lot about a love for, Dream Theater, for example, and you know, Love them. They're, they're a collective for sure. But come on, like John is so important in that, and you know, he's always been really, really sweet and encouraging. Like I seem to talk to him every like couple of weeks at the moment because you know, like I work for quite a few magazines, so I might end up interviewing him across the same album for different titles. Oh, yeah. Which, like going back to your question, Corey, that's another thing that can get challenging because how do you re-interview this guy right. that you've interviewed like twenty times? for like three or four different magazines and not do the same interview. And that's where and you, you have conflate to them ever. Like, do you ever like do an interview and cross your wires in that? Like, like you ask John for Kerrang something, but then guitar world, something else. And you're like writing for one article and you're like, that's, ha- that's yeah, that's happened in the past for sure. So I might have like, I might end up doing a three hour call. Um, and that might be like, yeah, one magazine's like cover story, another magazine's like second feature, um, I, I might even work with a band at a gig and I'll be doing the interviews at the gig and then I'm reviewing the show at the night. <laughs> After the show, I have to interview them again to do the how was it for you, <laughs> yeah. which goes with the live review. When you are when you are reviewing multiple or for multiple publications, is, is there ever any pushback or issue with those publications being like, hey, why'd you write that article? For, like, why'd you give them that that story instead of us or like anything like that? Is there any competition from that standpoint? It can be. And you know what? When I've worked as a magazine editor, I, I've certainly been a bit kind of uh, put off by freelancers, maybe writing for competition titles. But then again, you've got to think, how much competition is there? Is it a direct conflict? Because if it's like two magazines that are literally fighting for the same spot, you know, in WH Smith's or whatever, which is our shop where you buy magazines from, uh, not that it's even open right now. Um it's, you know, yeah, sure, it can get a bit hairy, but for me, no, it's always been good. I've always got, if I'm going for the guitar mags, then I'll have an angle for each one. You know, so right now there are two Metallica covers that I've done that are on the shelves. So I did Iron Maiden just the other week too, so that's coming out as the next total guitar, either cover or second feature. <clears throat> so yeah, it's like for the last few months, I've literally just been doing like the biggest and the heaviest, well, maybe not the heaviest, but the, certainly the, the big big fish off the pond and um it's so fun you know uh, for you know the two magazines that i've got with metallica on the cover right now they're very different pieces my involvement with each one was very very different you know 
other writers are involved sometimes. Sometimes it might just all be me. You know, it's just mixing and matching. But, you know, I think, A, don't miss deadlines. That's so important, man. Like, creatives, and I mean, musicians and writers, like, they don't really understand what a deadline is. It's like, if, you, if someone gives you a deadline, that's 10 a.m. You get it to them at 10 a.m. And don't, don't be late. Because if that person's waiting at 5 p.m., that's the end of their working day. They're, they're about to leave the office and they're trying to put a fucking magazine together. It's like, you've, you've got to learn to communicate with your bosses and let them know if you're running late. And I never do, actually. I've, I'm pretty on top of my workload. And I have to say, I've been really lucky over lockdown. I've said no to more articles than I ever have done. Just because, um, maybe because I've had a baby too and like we had the move as well, but... You know, I'm at a place where, you know, I'm kind of working on the things that I'm probably most excited about now. And, you know, I feel like I've interviewed all my heroes. There's not much left on the list. There is one name, though, Axel Rose. Oh, shit. Oh, wow. I'd kill to interview Axel. Totally. <laughs> like, oh, my God. He's like the most enigmatic human that has ever lived. I just... It's just a walking question mark. You should go watch the David. <laughs> we did an interview with David Abruzzese. And just so you understand, he actually said at one point that Axl Rose wanted to hand over the Guns N' Roses like IP to him. And he like, he didn't want to take the pressure. I'm serious. You go watch it. IP, and, but... Well, not IP, but basically said, here's the keys to the Guns N' Roses thing. Like, let's make this better. When Robin Fink was in the band, like all kinds of crazy stuff. And he said that for a month, Axl called him every single night for like three hours. And it was the most... Insane thing to hear the drummer from Pearl Jam talk about being in Guns N' Roses with the guy from A Perfect Circle and Nine Inch Nails talking bef- like during Chinese democracy like seven years before anything even happened. Like you should uh, you should watch it because it's illuminating. It's crazy. For sure, man. I'm a big Guns fan, you know, and I love all the people that have played in it. It's not just all about Slash for me. Obviously, Bumblefoot had some beautiful solos on Chinese Democracy. It's such an underrated album. And then Robin Fink's stuff was just perfect as well. Um, you know, Buckethead, come on. Like, that guy technically is just crazy. He does all this crazy tapping stuff like that. He walks up the strings and they're so chromatic and they're so outside and they're so, like, they really throw you. And I think... Maybe going back to my love for theory and the fact that, you know, I'm emailing Benny, what fucking key, you know, or scales. <laughs> you know, I, I eat scales for breakfast. I, you know, I love the melodic minor scale. I don't think you'll find rock guitar players generally saying that, you know, the melodic minor scale sounds shit when you don't know how to use it. It, it sounds awful. Like, why play it? But then when you know when to use it for the turnarounds or over, you know, uh, augmented chords, you know, or altered chords, it's like, Get involved. There he is. He's got the fucking guitar. Come on. <laughs> well, Jesus. the thing is, is, did you think to yourself when, when, when Bumblefoot joined Guns N' Roses, you're like, wait, they went from a guy <clears> named <throat> Buckethead to Bumblefoot? And this is, I didn't really know about either one of them. And then, you know, I saw Buckethead, which, by the way, I thought that that was a weird pairing because I feel like Buckethead's in such a separate universe to hear him have to be forced to play Slash, who's a completely different player, was strange for me, even though he's totally there. Um, but, you know, Bumblefoot, uh, Buckethead, Robert Fink, and even now, um, Richard Fortas. Talk oh, about well, the, and, and I say this true, I just saw uh, Guns N' Roses at Fenway. I still think that Slash is the best live guitarist I've ever seen as far as just feel, owning it with stage presence. Like, he never plays the same solo any night. Like, he he's he's just amazing. And it's just like, he's always going for it. He's always thinking. He looks like he's just into it every moment. And... Like, 
how can you not like Guns N' Roses? So seeing someone like Buckethead, which by the way, this is the biggest guitar ever. I don't know if yeah. you know, but this is like a 26 inch scale. Like I didn't realize until I got this thing, it's like eight times the size of a normal Les Paul. It's a bass. It's just a bass. It's insane. And I love his solo stuff. You know, he did this album called Colma that I absolutely adore. It's more like trip hop. You know, it's really ambient. And for, for a lot of it, he's on acoustic, really. Just so much reverb and delay. So what I love to do with all of these guitar players, and I've gotten to know, know them all, meet them, Robin Fink or Richard Fortas, you know, they're either on my Facebook or on my email or, or somewhere. I'll have crossed paths with these people and kept in touch. And I feel like my job, not only as a writer, but as a fan, I want to know these licks. I want to know where they're coming from. Uh, you know, with jazz players, I talk to them about theory. You know, I always want to know why are they getting away with using all those kind of chromatic outside sounding notes. And actually, like I said earlier, you just got to sit down with the diminished scale and not do the Yngwie thing. Because the diminished scale is such a beautiful scale outside of that kind of style. Um, and once you start kind of examining the, the kind of chord families within that scale and understanding how you can slot them into your classic metal riff or your cheesy rock and roll riff. Wow. You know. And I feel like that's sometimes part of my job, you know, because I'll be sat here reverse engineering the answers and then kind of picking that person's brain. Because quite often people will be like, oh, yeah, I don't really remember the, the second part of the solo, the, the seventh bar of my solo. And I'll be like, oh, here it is. <laughs> and, and you know what? They can't get out of it then. <laughs> They're kind of, I've got them against the wall and they can either tell me to fuck off, which they're more than welcome to do. But because I've taken the time to actually fucking learn it, you know, uh, they'll actually really open up. And from, yeah, that's an incredible approach. That that's very cool. From Slash, you know, I've, we've we've done the whole share the guitar thing. You know, Satchel. You know, I'm a huge. I learn all his solos whenever they come out because I love that kind of hair metal shred guitar stuff. And Benny he clearly does too. Stuff. He's, he's, he's amazing. amazing. Oh, he's so good. Uh, I think you know when that first album came out in particular. Obviously, it paradised a lot of my favourite songs from. Bon Jovi and Extremes, uh, whoever. But I actually like the, the parody versions more. I found myself listening to Phil Still being like, do you know what? I'd rather listen to that than Slippery When Wet. Do you know what I mean? It's, that's a killer it's, album. It's almost like he uh, sat around for 20 years playing those songs and said, how can I make them better? And then did. He, um, he texted me like just the other day. Actually, I just got an email back from him. And uh, I know the fight for the bass player position is really heating up. Uh, and there's two last contenders. It's me and Benny. So uh, <laughs> He came on our show and he actually, just so you know, the only reason, and I said this uh, to, to Satchel, the only reason I knew that Lexi had left was that I got messages on my phone, are you going to be the bass player from Steel Panther? And I'm like, for Steel Panther? Uh, I'm like, that's awesome. And then immediately I realized I'm not bitching enough. I'm not tan enough. And I certainly, I'd like to say I'm dumb enough, but I, I, I need to smoke more. Yeah, well, I mean, it'll be a tough fight because you, you look better with your top off. But I'm too much hair. of a musician to be a bass player. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, tell that to Cliff Burton. You can't. So. I, I have an Ouija board. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it's such a fucking crazy journey, journalism. I have to admit, it's like, it's like you find yourself in the weirdest scenarios. So I'll meet Siobhan, like, three or four years ago, randomly in Pittsburgh, or, you know, I'll end up in LA just seeing Steven Tyler getting 
kind of, well, into naughty business with a couple of women while still talking to people just out in public. Wait, you know, like paint this picture for us because we're from I'm from Boston. And and Aerosmith is like law here. Like you, you like Aerosmith or just you move. And, yeah, cool. Uh, uh, Steven Tyler, there's lots of stories. <laughs> Everybody has a Steven Tyler story. Yours sounds very interesting. Can you paint this picture as a journalist for all of our listeners? I get thrown out to LA and I'm not going to say the band who I was working with because they're the ones that kind of took me to where I ended up. But yeah, I fly out to LA, having a great time. And the band take me to Claudia Schiffer's husband's birthday party which is at the whiskey bar at the sunset marquee or just in the the sunset marquees i I, you know it's the only time i've been there and uh there were loads of kind of weird famous people in there and you know some i knew some i didn't and uh steven tyler was one of them and he was like kind of sat there in the kind of darker side of the bar and he had like a couple of ladies with him but they both had a hand in his trousers and uh the, the craziest thing is he, he just started a conversation with me. It's just like, yeah, but I don't know. How's it going? What are you up to? You having fun? And I'm just like, do you want 10 minutes? Shall I come back? You know, am I getting in the way? I could multitask. And he totally could multitask. He, he was talking to me while they were going at it. And, you know, I, I ended the conversation not knowing whether I should have just stayed longer just to keep talking to him. Um, but yeah, he had a great night. I had a great night. And then we caught up afterwards. And he, he definitely looked a lot more relieved. So, um, Well, could you imagine? What if you did stay longer? Do you think there would have been a moment where he was like mid-sentence? He was like, pardon me. Made like the interjection looking face. And then he was like, oh, continue. What were you saying? I've met him a couple of times. But the, the one in that band that I know probably best is Tom Hamilton and his tech. And they're lovely. So, like, one time me and my wife were in Spain, in Barcelona, on a holiday. I found out Aerosmith were playing just, like, down the road. So I literally send a text from my phone, and within a minute, they're like, bro, we're fucking killed to see you. Come on down. And so, like, you know, they sort us out, like, laminates and passes to get to the side of the stage. They even gave us, like, um, like headphones with Steven Tyler's, like, monitor mix. Oh, wow. And before they, ca- Whoa, before they come out. Whoa, how VIP? Do you have to be the one your monitor? You can hear him warming up. So, like, we're just sat backstage talking. We put them in, and then suddenly he says, And I'm like, fuck! And, like, that goes on for, like, literally 20 minutes. And me and my wife are like, shit! Because we were just on the beach, like, two hours before. You know, we only literally just found out. And we're like, all right, let's go. Um, And they kind of, they yeah, they blew my head off. They're amazing. They're so good live. You know, Aerosmith, bring it. Um, so, you know, just from interviewing them over the years, you know, it's been a lot of fun. You know, you, you, you form kind of friendships and you end up in weird places, like I say. You know, I ended up going to Colombia, you know, which isn't a place that I knew much about. And it was before all the kind of Netflix Pablo series stuff became cool. Um, and I was blown away by how warm and inviting the people were there and how passionate all the metal fans out there, because they don't really get as many of the big shows. And, you know, I interviewed some of the bands while I was out there and stuff. And, you know, I've been kind of to America loads and all around Europe. Uh, I love Europe the most, sorry. Uh, I know that's a bit rude to say that to you fine folk of America, but it's no, just like we two understand. hours. I mean, I, I do too, to be honest. <laughs> for me, it's like two hours on a plane and you can be pretty much anywhere, like on a beach, yeah. like... Barcelona or Nice or if you go a little bit further you can go to like Stockholm or 
Well, Greece. Go Dude, see my friend if you Gus go G. two hours in a in a fucking car, you can go to Jersey. You could stop and get yourself like some turkey that's been around for like three weeks. You could go see smog in New York. No problem. It smells delicious around uh, Times Square if you've ever been there. Um, you can't breathe because there's just too many people like pushing against you. Some of them are beautiful. Some of them are disgusting. Uh, so yeah, and then if you go a little bit this way, there's 12 hours straight of Pennsylvania. So yeah. I feel like what you're talking about sounds a lot more sophisticated. It's cool because, you know, we're, we're all very connected. And I don't know, that, you know, that obviously being in England right now is quite sad because we're no longer part of Europe. And there's this whole Brexit thing. You guys had Trump in America, but we had our own political battles. And I know this isn't a political conversation, but from my point of view, share, I, man. I love being... I love being part of like this wider network of crazy cultures. We've got so much history. Like it's insane. And you know, they come to England all the time. I mean, you know, I live in Brighton. It's such a popular tourist destination. You hear people from all parts of the world and especially Europe because we're, we're so close to each other. And, you know, I think, I don't know. Sometimes I get sad when you think like, oh, we're moving towards a more divisive kind of, uh, or I don't know. You know what we need angry. right now? Well, sure. go for it. I can tell you exactly what we need. We need Kiss to come on stage, but 80s Kiss and go, God gave rock and roll to <laughs> you. Gave rock and roll. And then Bill and Ted just save us. <laughs> and Steve I starts shredding over Kiss and it sounds like all of a sudden, like Bruce, Ku uh, Bruce Kulik actually was way better than Ace in my mind. But like Steve I over Kiss at the end of that movie. And then you're like, the world is fine. That's what I think we need right now because it's really sad what you're saying. I, I think together, d together we stand, divide we fall. And that was actually a British guy himself too, this guy Roger Waters, who by the way has also gone off over the edge. <laughs> Have you ever watched what Roger Waters is saying right now? Because you're you're a smart person and you're and you're from London, and I always thought Pink Floyd had the most introspective lyrics, and like they were so smart. And and I love David Gilmore. I think he's one of the greatest human beings ever. Oh. And then I watch like this rhetoric from Roger Waters, and I'm like, "Where? When did this happen? Like, do you know what I'm talking about?" Oh, totally, man. Uh, Eric Clapton's another one. Obviously, we've oh, all yeah. got straps. We all, but uh, but Eric's made a few boo boos over his years. You know, it's not the first time he said something that's actually quite dangerous and wicked you know, dangerous. And uh, in fact, he said in the past is way more dangerous than the shit he's saying now. But still, it's a bit like. Oh man, I really looked up to you. I wish you I wish you didn't think like that. But I think one thing as a journalist you have to kind of do is just accept that people come from different backgrounds and I don't know, they, they might have a different mindset. I can't speak for America, you know, I you know, at the end of the day, who cares what I think? You know, I've I've visited America and I love what I've experienced of it, but when the whole Trump thing was going down, it was like, Oh shit <laughs> you know. But my point is we have our own kind of little battles up here in the UK. And, uh, you know, the best part is, yeah, you get to travel, you get to go to these weird festivals that are a bit further away, and you, you just meet people. You're constantly kind of just crossing paths. Cool. That's well, the, as we, um, we're, we're coming up to the end of our first hour here, uh, and maybe, maybe in the next hour we, we can hear some more specifics about some of these festivals and the places you've traveled to. Um, cause you know, sure. we, I, we all love the backstage tour stories and stuff like that. So we'll, we'll dive a little deeper, but we appreciate you, you know, taking time out of your day to, to sit with us and, and share your experience. Um, so where can people find more out about you? Uh, 
Um, well, uh, I've, I'm on Instagram and Twitter like everyone else, I guess. Uh, my my name, so to speak, is 666Amit, A-M-I-T. So uh, come and say hey. Um, I've also got like a website too, which has got like some of my portfolio stuff, some of my cover stories, because, you know, I've done a lot of big features, you know, on Iron Maiden or Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin and Tool and, you know, just all these big, big What can we go read uh, right now? Like, so if I was going to either Google's you or walk into a store here, what, what, you said you have two cover stories with Metallica right now. What? magazines are yeah so uh guitar world in america currently has metallica on the cover and i was part of that kind of team that put that together and wrote some of it and then the in the uk and europe we have total guitar and i think you can get that in america too and i did the uh the lead kind of interview with kirk about it you know talking about him writing and sandman the phrygian and phrygian dominant both of them benny so think about that major four um in wherever i may roam you know just things like that talking about i don't know the use of wah wah uh, or the way he uses pentatonics you know i find guitar players will look at the fretboard in two ways they'll either look at it as pentatonics and add in the notes or they'll think in terms of three note per string like modal scales and i feel like my one of my best things as a guitar player myself is that i think i can wear both hats i can kind of choose when I want to go down the pentatonic route and then obviously play more modally. And I think a lot of my favorite players do that too. Have you ever seen John Petrucci go from like super modal to just, just a few choice pentatonic notes? You know, I listen to a lot of blues too. So guys like Joe Bonamassa, Eric Gales, you know, uh, they've all been huge, huge influences on me. And I love interviewing those guys too. I know this is a bit rock and roll and Lost Symphony and Star Set and no, all that. No, it's but, anything. You know, and and just so you know, Joe Bonamassa is trying to sell the guy that who puts on the show one of his 58 flying Vs. <laughs> and uh, we just sent him a picture of my buddy's 52 um, Esquire. So wow. we love Joe. And Joe did a lot of the work behind the scenes for Jason Becker. So, And he's one of the greatest guitar players and guitar nerds. So, like, he's a self-proclaimed guitar nerd. So... First off, this show transcends that. Like, I hate people that are like, metal only! There's Slayer, there's Maiden, and then there's Sabbath. It's a Sabbath with Dio. It's a separate band. It's called Heaven and Hell. Like, I don't like people like that. I think it's awesome if you can go and listen to Britney Spears or Bon Jovi or Aerosmith or Metallica or fucking EDM for fucking six years. I don't give a shit as long as you Yeah, we appreciate, appreciate all it. music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I listen to a lot of, like, dance music, too. I love Dead Mouse and... You know, mm -hmm. I listen to Skrillex just like any other person. Aphex Twin, you know, Square Pushers, stuff like that. But when it comes to the jazzy guitar players, you know, I've interviewed George Benson. Like, what a huge opportunity, you know, to speak to someone that like that about their, you know, their approach to jazz. And the weird thing is that he's the biggest influence on my favorite lead player, Richie Kotzen. So, like, if you ask Richie, where, where are you doing all those kind of chromatical notes? Where are you getting all that from? And he'll just literally tell you, listening to George Benson and you know that, that's the beauty of music you know uh, even what you guys do in Lost Symphony you know I love the fact that you're bridging things that are actually very related you know rock and well classical. you just mentioned something important because a guy like Ingve Malmsteen took classical and made neoclassical and then he took like Vivaldi and Paganini and, and, and made that cool Richie Kotzen who goes all the way back again to like, you know, the Mike Varney, Jason Becker days, Marty Friedman, all like that same school, Paul Gilbert. He basically took the jazz, 
So like Neo Jazz almost, because he took like a guy like George Benson straight up, not ripped him off, but did the same thing as like a guy like Slash for blues, where he's like, oh, you blues players, Eric Clapton, I'm going to make Eric Clapton if he was Randy Rhodes. And that's like kind of what Richie Kotzen did for jazz is that like for me is that he put a little bit more shred on it. He played really clean and he did it in a rock scenario. But even to this day, he's playing sometimes with his hands and all. And it's fucking bananas. It's crazy. I, I like players that use those outside notes. So Nick Johnston, uh, the pink guitar there, he's a very outside player. Guthrie Govan, he's from England. I love the fact that the best guitar player in the world comes from England. <laughs> he's we win! <laughs> I mean, you, you, you won't be able to beat that. Like, that guy can do anything. He's and... a guitar player? I thought he was like a Jedi scientist. He just, like, looks at <laughs> you and you're like, the arpeggios are gone to your brain. And it's like, I've... You, and you see that guy, too. He looks like Sideshow Bob from fucking Simpsons. And it's like, Sideshow <laughs> Bob? This is the guy that's the greatest guitarist? I thought I was a Portuguese from the Azores. There's this Sideshow Bob's the dude? Wow. And as usual, oh. you like to derail the end of the episode, Ben. <laughs> oh, he taught at the university that I went to, as did a guy called Dave Kilminster, who plays for Roger Waters, the, the main lead guitar player in that band. And he also played for Stephen Wilson. So, you know, the whole guitar uni thing, you know, was really good because a lot of the session guys I was getting taught by, you know, helped me get into some session guitar stuff. So I'll probably talk about that in our next oh, chat great. and let That's you know who I awesome. played for. Um and there's a few other things that I've done across the years. I was in Game of Thrones, but you won't have seen me. So uh, what's this face? All will be revealed, I take okay. it. Siobhan <laughs> dresses Khaleesi a- just for you. <laughs> How about that for a teaser? <laughs> there we go. So st- right stick around for part two. <laughs> Thank you for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 81 featuring Richard Shaw of Cradle of Filth. Check it out. But to me, that's true artistry. It's when you're pushing the boundaries of where it happens. Like, like this is why it's weird, because I've never considered myself an artist. I've always considered myself like a, a, a session guy who just learned all these different styles of music and was lucky to make a living doing it and then obviously then I got the call for Cradle of Filth and it was like oh I have to write songs now and I have to say something with what I'm doing and then that became a whole new thing where it was like oh my god now I have even more respect for the artists who have been successful think of the Bowies of the the world and Zeppelins of the world (laughs) you know what I mean where you go they're true trailblazers that's that can't be easy hey there i am johnny christ from avenge sevenfold and i've got a podcast called drinks with johnny you're gonna want to check out i sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life from professional wrestlers to actors comedians fighters musicians Everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.